What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. This is a brand new season. Season four coming at you. I'm stoked. I'm super stoked. Why am I stoked? Because there's a lot of stuff happening right now. I got a brand new album out, Corey Wong and Dirty Loops. The album is called Turbo. Check it out wherever you listen to music or whatever. But equally as exciting, I have my number one favorite guitar player, Pat Metheny, on the show today. Wow. That was number one on my list as guests that I wanted for this podcast. At the end of the podcast, I'll tell you who the others are. Because I, you know, it's, I, there's, there's a handful that, I've, that are just my dream guests. Pat was my number one dream guest. I'm so stoked to have him on the show. He doesn't need an introduction, really, because he's an absolute ledge upon legends. He has an entire garage full of Grammy Awards. He has millions of albums sold as a primarily, I'm going to use the dirty word, jazz artist. That's insane. So many years of so many collaborations with so many incredible musicians, somebody that most guitar players really look up to. Insane technique, insane time, insane melodic ideas. Honestly, he's just an incredible guitarist with a singular voice on the instrument. That's actually one of the things that's most inspiring to me, is that as soon as you hear it's Pat Metheny, you know it's Pat Metheny. Let's get to it. This season of Wong Notes Podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album, DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there. And that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties. This person gets 25%. This person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Pat, thank you so much for being here. What an honor to have you on the show. It really means a lot that you're here. Thanks. Great to be with you, Corey. Uh, Okay. I got a lot of questions. The first one I want to start with, I like to talk about people's approach to artistry, creativity, their approach to guitar, all those things. I want to start with artistic vision and direction because there's a pretty obvious, there's several obvious paths in your artistry that I see. There's the albums like your most current one with Side Eye. There is, you know, like the Day Trip, Bright Size Life, the smaller ensemble stuff, the trio albums. Uh, And then there's things like Secret Story, The Way Up, Orchestrion, where there's so much more orchestral large ensemble approach to things. Is there a certain thing that you are, is there a certain itch that you're trying to scratch which with each of those avenues? Is there a certain artistic headspace that you have to get in for those different paths? It's a nice question. What I often try to represent when answering a question like that is something that's very subjective to the way I 
see it, which is I see it as one long thing that began with the first couple notes of Right Size Life, and it continues. It's one tune. And um, along the way, I've invited kind of a cast of characters along here and there that I felt were the best people to help me sort of get to a certain result. And, you know, then it gets a little dicey because, of course, we're talking about music, which is very difficult to illuminate through language. Yeah. But I have a few real strong models in in kind of artistic life. Paul Clay, the painter, is one of them in Mm. the sense that he did an enormous variety of things, but it was always unmistakable that it was him. And there was an amazing range of techniques and and approaches and, and, uh, you know, not like somebody like Jackson Pollock, where there's a kind of almost similarity to the point of almost monochromatic similarity across his whole thing. And, you know, in, in music, you know, my role models from the very beginning were people where they had an identity that was kind of the mandate of why they did what they did. You know, that changed somewhere kind of like along the trajectory that I've been around. I mean, I can almost point to like around 1980 or so, where suddenly it was sort of okay to just sound like somebody else, you know, that kind of didn't really exist as an aesthetic uh, purpose, you know, it, maybe it's like, you know, people talk about postmodern this or, you know, different generations or whatever. For me, the, the kind of fundamental thing about, you know, whether it's music or anything else is to represent in whatever form you choose the things that you find to be true and of value kind of through the prism of the particular tradition that you're dealing with. So in my case, I was around people who literally, you know, like a foot away from me, illuminated that goal. And I'm talking about like Gary Burton, for instance, who was a big hero for me, kind of invented a new way to play an instrument. And I mean, it was completely, thoroughly, solidly based on the tradition that got to that point. But he found another way to do it. And, you know, when I think of all of my favorite musicians, regardless of what community they hang in or whatever it is, the creative goal seemed to always then manifest in the sound that they made. And I mean, you know, I'm just going to name some names. Wes Montgomery, Keith Jarrett, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, Bach, Beethoven, Steve Reich. You just say their name and you... We all know that sound. Yes. And at the same time, there's an incredible range of ways that those musicians addressed that goal of being a creative, you know, human on this planet during the time that they're in. So for me, it's always been a very natural kind of aspirational thing to try to reflect in the stuff that I've offered out into the world the things that I love and the things that I have found to be a value. And I also kind of um, approach it, you know, in a way, this is church for me. I mean, this is like, you know, (laughs) I tell people whenever they come into the band, I mean, 
you know, this is life and death. Every gig may be the last gig and I'm going to play it like it's the last time I'll ever play. And music is like that for me. This is like serious, serious business. And at the same time, it's the most fun possible way, I think, to go through life. And it's also one of the most difficult things you can do. And by that, I mean, all the stuff I've been talking about for the last three and a half or four minutes is an unbelievably difficult task to achieve. So all I can say is when I look back on all of that stuff that you you talked about, I don't break them apart. Like, the, okay, there's this, and then this was a trio. We did this one in two days. This one, it took four days to get the snare drum sound. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like there's an infinity of things going yeah. on done different ways. But for me, the, the ultimate goal is to try to tell a story, that narrative sort of expositional way that I think exists in pretty much all great music, even if it's very abstract, yeah. that sort of narrative unfolding is, is present and try to do it through a personal way of being. And, you know, I, uh, you, you probably can tell my number one hero is Wes Montgomery. I mean, you know, some people can't tell it to me. It's like so obvious, but, you know, something I say a lot, and it's true. You know, I want to do what Wes did. I don't want to do what he did. And by that, I mean, he found a way to be himself that is represented with like 99% accuracy across every note that he played. And to me, you know, I don't know why that sort of kind of stepped back from being like what you're supposed to do, but it kind of did happen. You know, there's now like people who are fluent. I mean, like within, you know, 20 miles from here, I could find 30 people who could play giant steps backwards in 15-8 and all yeah. this stuff. <laughs> it's very difficult for me to find somebody who can play the melody, though, mm. or who can play a ballad. You know, all the kind of fundamental things, you know, that you should be doing before you're playing in 15-8 and stuff. So, I mean, things have gotten a little bit, you know, sort of convoluted. But we do live in a pretty convoluted world, so maybe it is an honest response to, to the way <laughs> things are. That was a long answer, man. You're going to have some serious editing to do that. No, that's a great answer. And that, <laughs> it actually also answers a handful of other things that I was wondering about with what, what drives you, what motivates you. But you, you mentioned a handful of people that, as, like you said, as soon as you hear their name, there is such a striking identity with them, with Herbie, with Gary Burton, you know, and, and so many other people also that you play with, somebody like Jocko or Brecker or Joni Mitchell, you are one of those people as well. Like you're saying, like, I hear that through line. I hear that story. There are so many parts of something that we hear. When I hear a Pat Metheny tune, when I listen to this new Side Eye record, I know right away that it's you. There are a lot of pieces of information that I'm absorbing when I, that inform that, like, uh, identity of of how I oh I how I know that it's you in the same way that if when I see you you know on the camera here you know there's tone there's touch there's timing uh there's phrasing there's note choices there's melodic delivery intonation all those different things what do you feel like is the most prominent thing or what do you think it really is that makes up 
your identity as a musician and artist and how somebody can find their own identity if they feel like they're lost? Well, those are two pretty different roads there. Yeah. Um, because every, every person has such wildly different methods to get to whatever it is they want to get to. Um, and particularly the guitar, which, I mean, no two people do anything the same way. You know, they wildly different techniques and different instruments. And, you know, some guy holds it down here. Some guy's got it up by his neck. You know, I mean, it's like there's just no, it's not like piano where they've kind of figured out, like, if you're going to play a chromatic scale, this is like the best finger. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all bets are off in, in our zone. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, when I think about what, you know, all the goals that I listed before um, entail within the the general community or zone that I hang in, I mean, in every case, when I think about a great musician, the first thing is time. It's how does it feel? Mm. Because if it doesn't feel good, it doesn't matter how hip it is or how convoluted or how, you know, many great other features there are it's the rhythm thing that is absolutely the most essential thing and for some reason or another very difficult to get to on the guitar yeah um, i think it's a matter of the coordination involved between the two hands but particularly in the zone that i once again kind of am lucky to inhabit um, that's kind of the the thing that really separates i think you know a certain level of player, not just on the guitar, but on every instrument is how it feels and the ability to kind of play a certain kind of triplet bass thing yeah. that, that is in fact kind of the meat and potatoes of across all, all the different subcategories of things that have happened in, let's say American music sure. over the last, you know, hundred and some years how that gets translated into sound by a musician is absolutely the central thing. But, you know, you listed a whole, every single thing you listed in your list of <laughs> musical things. And I really appreciate it that, that I'm, that you're noting those things as being a factor for me. Um, they're all, you know, like really still ongoing projects to develop and understand and, and work on, you know, one that, jumps out that because it's the hardest one to talk about is the issue of melody because i mean you can go to to a college now for four years and study harmony the entire time and you know there's infinity ways to quantify harmony you can go to you know that same degree of research rhythmically and talk about metric modulations and all kinds of stuff like that the 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 class on melody is going to be about four minutes. And after that, you know, you can talk about a couple things, but they aren't really the thing because I mean, yes, there's something that's melodious. That's not too hard to describe, you know, smaller intervals, you know, diatonic target notes that are diatonic, so forth. That's not it. It's that's not what melody is to me. To me, melody is sort of actually the way things add up. And it has more to do with this sort of narrative expositional 
approach to music than it does necessarily to something that we're gonna like break it down into intervallic relationships and so forth. Um, and also I think when, when I'm talking about melody, I mean, you know, an example I use is like, you can knock a bunch of trash cans down a flight of stairs, that's a melody. There's sure. a melody there. I, I think some people, when you say melody, they think of like, you know, happy birthday, which is a, actually a great example of melodic development. I use that all the time. You know, if everybody could play their improvised stuff with as much cohesion and melodic development that exists in happy birthday, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's not exactly, that's part of it, but that's not really it. It has to do with the way somebody organizes whatever their goal is in a way that kind of reflects some kind of coherent point of view that I, I feel has to be digestible by somebody. I mean, it might be a, a, an incredibly tiny group of very discerning listeners to a very particular way of being, but there has to be a clarity. And that clarity to me sort of is what melody is. And, um, you know, beyond that, there's some specific aspects of melody that for me are really important. And again, rare, you know, starting with like, you know, Lester Young, um, you know, Stan Getz, Wes is a great example of this. You know, we, we know the classic melody type players, Yeah. but you know, even Bird, even Train, even Clifford Brown, in terms of the thing that I'm talking about, they played more notes, but it absolutely represented that standard that you would find in the best melodies. And um, that's really the hardest one is to be able to kind of invent that level of melodic um, fluency kind of on the fly, dealing with really uh, challenging materials. Yeah, And of course that kind of defines the world that I've, I, once again, been really lucky to hang in for the last 50 years or so. I mean, playing on tunes that have lots of changes and, you know, with really good drummers that are going to really get in there. You know, that's those two parts of of, of it are, are really almost, a, you know, across the board for me. Of course, we absolutely love your improvisation, your lines, your concept, harmonic concept and melodic concept in your improvisations. But I had a real turning point the first time I heard the Secret Story album, because that album is a great example of delivering a melody on the instrument. And then when you weave into solos, it does really just feel like a continuation of the melody in a certain way that really taught me a lot when I, when I really was able to dive into the listening on that. Do you feel like it's more important to for for somebody learning guitar, learning to improvise on guitar, learning how to deliver melodies first? Or is it more about learning scales, changes, weaving lines and jazz language, uh, R&B language, whatever genre they're in? One of my first questions when I run across a musician who wants to talk about stuff is, you know, very simple one that turns out to be very hard to answer, which is what do you want to do? And that's the key. It's like, what do you want to do? And let, let's make the analogy that everything you just talked about is we're going to switch it over to a language. Like, okay, I want to learn ancient Flemish. Or something <laughs> like that. You know, okay. So 
if what you want to do in ancient Flemish, or let, that's a bad example, let's say Portuguese, if what you want to do in Portuguese is be able to go to the corner in Brazil and order a Coke, you can do that. You can do that. If you want to go to, to Brazil and stand up in front of 3,000 nuclear physicists and give a speech on nuclear physics in Portuguese, you have a completely different set of tasks ahead of you. You know, in my case, I'm talking about nuclear physics, you know? Yeah. I'm talking about John Coltrane and Bird and being able to play, you know, the song is you in all 12 keys so that they're all the same. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's what it was for me. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I still want to do. And, um, you know, so if that's the response that somebody has, yeah, I'd like to be able to play in that zone at a high level, there's no shortcut to understanding, you know, it's like, you know, what that means is uh, you, you're going to have a five to 10 year period that includes everything you just talked about. I don't think you can separate anything out from anything else. Um, but I also like to add to that throughout that entire process, if it were a language, you probably wouldn't be too worried about your tongue. You know, it's just going to kind of do its thing. You're going to be doing a lot of brain work and, you know, you you might have to practice a couple pronunciation things, but mostly your tongue is going to kind of do its thing. And I mean, for somebody who's holding an instrument in their hand, there's that too, which is, you know, you have to be able to negotiate the instrument to a degree that you can then also possibly address the language issues. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a whole other level on top of everything we're talking about, including the, the language example, which is, yes, you can become nuclear physics level fluent in Portuguese and you can start to give your talk. And within 10 seconds, if you are a boring speaker, even if it's the most perfect Portuguese ever spoken, people are going to leave. And they're not even going to say, well, that guy speaks great Portuguese. They're going to say, man. I couldn't sit through 30 seconds of that because it was not happening. It wasn't engaging. It wasn't compelling. It didn't bring me anything. So, you know, in a lot of ways, this incredible work that's involved to become fluent is really just something to maybe get you in the door to then start to really be what we're talking about here, which is to be a musician. You know, I don't think that many people at the early going exactly know what they want to do, but they do know what their favorite music is. And if their favorite music is Steely Dan, let's say, or if it's uh, the Beatles, you know, there's a level of musicianship required to hang with that that's different than the Sex Pistols. Yeah. You know, or whatever. And, um, we're, we live in an incredibly rich world of musical possibilities. I mean, you know, each new generation that comes along has a whole new set of additional, I could say options, but I would say actually responsibilities, because the idea is to keep it going, right? We're kind of passing the baton, you know, one generation to the next. And, um, 
you know, I've been the incredible beneficiary of that, you know, along the way. And, uh, and also I think you, you have to seek out the possibilities for that to happen. Um, and, but it's always based on what do you love? I mean, you know, I do hear from people on occasion, like, you know, this, the general, again, the, the area of music that includes, you know, what I do and miles and all that stuff, you know, like, you know there's the J word. Nobody really likes it. Yeah. I was going to say, are I, you, are you trying I not know, to use that I don't word? like it. I, I've never <laughs> liked it. I don't know anybody that really does like it. And we, we don't have a good name for, for it. You know, especially these days, I, when I think about like Chick or Herbie or Keith or uh, Gary's like this, Christian, among my more contemporaries, Christian McBride, Chris Potter, Antonio Sanchez. I mean, any of us could go tomorrow and play, you know, with Beyonce, you know, and we wouldn't get fired. We we would do fine. They probably <laughs> want us to come back the next night. Yeah. And and we could go also and play with the New York Philharmonic playing really hard written music. And we could play really fast and we could play really slow and we can play heavy metal loud and we could play so soft. Even Charlie Hayden would think it was too loud. You know, to me, that <laughs> whatever that is, whatever that thing is, is a little bit new. I mean, there's always been Art Tatum. There's always been Burr. There was all, you know, Train. There were people who were incredibly advanced on their instruments, actually transcendent on their instruments, pushing the instruments to new levels. But this kind of overall musicianship thing, you know, I don't feel like any of the people I mentioned and me neither, we're thinking about music. We're not thinking about this kind of music or that kind of music to me when people start talking about that stuff it's almost always a political or cultural or dress code discussion <laughs> it's not it's not really a musical discussion it's like you know am i going to wear a t-shirt or a tux you know to, to me the one break that is a significant break is the difference between notated written music and non-written music yeah because that is a break yeah. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean that non-notated music can't be notated, but the way that those musicians in those two different camps get to what they're getting to is culturally quite different and always has been. And notation is a relatively new development in our human you know, spectrum. So, I, I, it, I mean, we've all had the experience of being around, you know, people who can read, you know, as the saying goes, fly shit on a page who you give them two chords and they're like lost, you know, and it goes the other way too, you know, probably just as much, if not more, where somebody can, you know, completely deal on all kinds of stuff as an, you know, improviser or blues player or whatever. And they, you know, you, you give them a piece of paper, I mean, the joke of the, how do you get a guitar player to turn down, give them a piece of sheet music to read, you know? Yeah. And that's usually true. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, guitar is an exceptionally hard instrument to read on compared to other it instruments. Is. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So you, I, I'm trying to interpret the way that you're talking about the guitar and there's kind of three camps that you brought up, at least what I'm interpreting. There's the actual physicality of the instrument, the tongue, like you're talking about when you're learning the language. Then there is the actual learning the language, which may be more like the concept. Okay, having 
being able to to speak the language. But then you brought up a third one that was often not talked about, and I'm curious on how you approach this, is actually having some an interesting way to say something. When you're performing, okay, you might have the technical facility, you might have the tunes down, and you might know the language and know the right things to play, but how to perform them, how to bring life to it. In those three kind of realms, how would you suggest practicing those things? It's, it's difficult for me to take number three as the last thing. Because ah. to me, that would be the first thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, let's start with it. <laughs> and Yeah, because it's like, if that's not there, the other things don't matter. You know, because in fact, you know, how many billion YouTube videos are there of now people sitting in their room doing whatever with a guitar in their hand that, you know, we all now have heard and you listen to it for like five seconds and you you move on. But then every now and then there's somebody who maybe isn't doing the, the, the thing like, you know, whatever that is. And you go, wow. That's that's really interesting. That's good. You're compelled to want to hang with that. Um, you know, that's a very odd subgrouping based on our moment in culture of what the thing is, which is we're supposed to tell a story. We're storytellers. We're, we're in the business of describing the world around us through this very abstract thing of what music is. And our goal should be to communicate that to our friends, our family, our peers, our, you know, everyone. And um, to me, there, there is a cliche that, that is one of the probably biggest cliches of all, but it really applies to music, which is the things that are most personal become the most universal. And that's why I keep going back to this thing of whatever it is that you, that you know, you hear all kinds of music and you can appreciate it, but there's some music you hear and you just freak out. That's your thing. That's you. And to me, that's something really worth paying attention to. I mean, something I was about to start and I went off on one of my tangents is that um, the, the way people often describe improvised music, you know, post uh, Charlie Parker improvised music, I hear people say, well, it's kind of hard, you know, it's, you got to learn about it. You've got to listen to it a lot and you've got to, you know, study who did what, when, I mean, it's almost like they're saying, eat your vegetables or something, you know, and that may be true for some people, but for me, literally five seconds of the needle drop on the miles record four and more, which wasn't even miles. It was Tony Williams my life was different. It was like somebody hit me over the head with a baseball bat and I was 11. So I didn't need the vegetable speech. Yeah. That was it for me. <laughs> I mean, that was it. And that's still it. I mean, that's a record I've listened to probably, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of times since, and it still does it for me. And so I encourage people, you know, and this is connected a little bit with what do you want to do that thing? You know, it, it, I think defining goals is really a good thing to do. Like, what do you want to do? Well, I love this band or I love this singer. I love this music. Okay. How does that music work? Because, you know, I mean, you've touched on this a little bit. In my case, there's a pretty wide range of things represented across that one tune from Bright Size Life till now. But every single bit of that is because 
I heard something as a fan and I'm like, what is that and how does it work? And once I understand how something works, it's very natural for me to then want to explore it more and kind of eventually it becomes like a new word in the vocabulary. Like you hear somebody use some you know, new expression, even if it's slang or something like that. And then you say, well, what's that mean? And then the next thing you know, you're having a conversation and you're using it too. Yeah. It's because you heard somebody do it and you kind of dug it. Yeah. And you then eventually kind of brought it into your world and you're probably saying it your way now too. You know, it's like that. But again, maybe where there's a break for me is that I never was looking at the kid next to me or the guy somewhere around, because in, in a lot of ways where I grew up, there wasn't anyone. It was, I didn't know any other people, you know, like me. So I was always, and still, you know, when I think about what am I doing? Well, compared to Bach, it sucks. <laughs> and that's where I'm, that's the standard for me. I don't think about, wow, compared to that guy. I'm pretty good. You know, I'm thinking about Wes, Miles, Bach, you know, Wagner, you know, Mahler. That to me is the standard. And, you know, to pretend otherwise is always a little puzzling to me. Like, it's not like that stuff went away. It's, it's not only there, it's there more than ever. That's to me, again, we're kind of now sliding into the cultural thing of why, you know, at a certain point, it sort of became okay to do sort of a not as good version of something else, as opposed to the, I want to do what he did, not what he did thing. Yeah. And, and I imagine that there's some level of, it's a little more comforting for our ego to not have to compare ourselves to Bach or compare ourselves to Herbie or compare ourselves to Miles. Yeah. You know, don't worry about your, e if you're worried about your ego, you're already in trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because music, honest, truly music yeah. demands humility. And, and if you don't, if you don't acknowledge the humility required, you're probably really not dealing with it because I mean, music, even if you start to get like where you're fluent, competent, you can hang, you can do this or that, there will be the night in uh, you know Syracuse or wherever, where you're gonna just not get there. You're gonna like not have a good night. And if you're thinking you're, you know, you've gotten there, no. You know, it's like a constant, constant, constant thing to maintain even what you've got, let alone improve on it. Something that doesn't get said very much, music is really hard. <laughs> it's hard to be, it's hard to be a good musician. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's, um, and it's also hard to be a good musician and maintain being a good musician and also honor the tradition of working on like adding rooms to whatever your thing is, you know, as opposed to like, okay, I've just built my house. No, you got to keep, you know, keep it moving. And, um, you know, it does not, withstand uh stopping it, it it will it will i mean entropy will kick in you have to move and um you know there is a tendency and this goes in with your ego con uh, you know comment you know once you kind of get to something you kind of go okay now i can sort of play the third tune in the fourth set and when that minor seventh flat five chord comes along 
I, man, I hit that minor seven flat five right on and I didn't play the natural five. So I got it. No, all that means <laughs> is you got through that one time. Yeah. Okay. You know, sure. And, um, you know, at, at, you know, add infinitum, you know, well, but you, you brought up something that I, I'm, I'm very curious about in your realm because I've seen you play several times and do three hour long shows where you do 45 minutes of solo guitar and then, you know, two hours with Christian McBride and Antonio Sanchez, or you do 45 minutes of solo guitar and then two hours with the orchestrion or with, you know, the way up ensemble and so many different things. When it comes to maintenance, like you're talking about, maintaining not only the physical side and the physical side of playing the guitar, the physical side of being on the road so much, also the the emotional and mental capacity that it takes to have that focus, to have that drive, to ha- to be able to maintain that sort of thing. What does it take for you to keep that maintenance up? I, I always kind of preface a response to something like that by acknowledging that the line between talent and mental illness is very small. (laughs) And um, in my case, you know, I was lucky at a very young age to be able to devote myself in an incredibly committed kind of way to being a musician. And you know, I, I, my parents, I'm from a little town in, in the Midwest, you know, for my parents, it was like, you know, mom and dad, um, I think I'm going to join the devil worship church down the street here. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was just like, you're going to, you're, you were listening to what you want to do what, I mean, it was just off the grid for them. And being a parent of, bunch of kids myself now, I realized that for them, it would be like one of my kids coming to me and saying, dad, I've decided to become a professional video game player. And it's like, my response would be, no, you're no, you you can't do that. That's not going to work. So in my case, you know, I went down this road that ended up allowing my incredibly Steve Rodby, my good friend and partner, has a description for my thing as being compulsively productive, which is probably true. I get up at four in the morning almost every day, work on music, tell everybody else gets up. You know, I'm constantly, you know, involved in some. In in, in my case, it it all worked out. You know, it could it could have gone really wrong, but it you know I was lucky. Everything was cool. Um, one of the byproducts of that was that I was able to start working around Kansas City at a very young age. I was about a little bit at 14, but starting at 15, I was working with really great musicians. Almost all of those musicians had something going on, yeah. mostly alcohol, but other stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> and it was pretty clear to me as the night would go on that everybody sounded worse and worse and worse. I did not see any benefit to whatever everybody else was doing. And sure. that kind of put me on a path where I've never, I've never had a drink in my life. I've never tried any drugs. I've, ne- I've never smoked. I, and it's not because of a moral thing. It's kind of on one level, apathy because I just don't feel any need whatsoever to change anything. I can't believe we're all here. I mean, to me, this is like already so incredible that, 
you know, it's like, wow, why would I, why would anybody want to alter any aspect of this? But it was also practical, which is I was playing with guys who, as soon as they understood that I could play the song as you in the original key, they would play it in a different key the next night. So I was just barely hanging anyway. So to me, it was an absolute pragmatic thing. Like, man, I better just stay on this. So as the years have gone by, I mean, I've been around, you know, all different kinds of musicians with all different kinds of lifestyles. I've not really seen any upside to people doing whatever they're doing outside of the realm of this. And now, um, you know, I, I do look back because you're right. I mean, I played two and a half, three hours every night for many years. It was more than 200 days a year out on the road. Um, now it's, it's less, but, um, it's still more than most people. I mean, you know, it's like 150 or something like that. You know, I realize now that it's good that I live that kind of life because it's just not an issue for me. You know, it's it's uh, man, it's a privilege to be able to play. And I've always thought of it like that. I've, I've, I've always felt like any chance to play is like, you know, just incredible. Get to play, you know. So part part of the reason for wanting to play long sets is just I love playing. Um, but also, you know, to me, there is this sort of narrative aspect to a presentation um, that has always been an issue for me. It's a little different than maybe a lot of the kind of community, once again, that I hang in, where it's kind of casual. People just kind of stroll out on stage and take their instrument out. And all. My thing has always been like, you know, not that. I, I feel like, you know, the guy in the third row had to like, you know, take a shower and pick up his date and park and get ticket and all that. To me, that's that requires that we take it even more seriously we're going to do a really good sound check we're going to do everything we can do i'm going to make sure you know the music is memorized and you know that that it's really together and to me it doesn't matter if it's song x or what whatever you know the 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 little bits that you can do to just show consideration to people that wow you guys did what you had to do to come I want to give that back times 10 times. And to me, it's no compromise. We're still going to play, you know, me, Ornette, Charlie and Jack playing full out, you know, but just by sort of presenting it with a a level of consideration, man, people went crazy for that tour, you know, people that had never heard Ornette before. And uh, it doesn't take much, you know. And again, a lot of times I see I, I don't want to pick on younger guys, but I don't know where they're getting it, that they think it's OK to like show up and set up the instruments in front of the audience and then pass out the Bailey's charts to cats and they haven't rehearsed and call that a gig. That's not a gig. That's a rehearsal. And, you know, I see that a lot. And I'm like, where did you guys get that? I mean, you, you know, like Miles, you never saw music on the bandstand you know, or the Beatles, you know, I mean, it's like, where is that coming from? I, I don't understand that. I am a hundred percent with you. I think there's respect for the audience, like you're saying, but also just respect for the craft. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I write hard stuff. There's 30, 40 pages of stuff to learn. Sometimes. <laughs> it's hard for me to learn it, you yeah. know, but, but it's, you know, it's like, okay, that's what the gig is, you know? Yeah. I know. It seems that you're very, uh, musically and just worldly aware. And you've been somebody who's obviously studied 
the music of Bach, Beethoven, Wagner, like you're saying, you've studied Wes, you've studied Miles and, and all these musicians of, of all decades, generations, you've been around legends like Chick, Herbie, Jocko, Joni, Brecker, Lyle Mays, Meldow, Ornette, Jim Hall, Gary Brett, like the, the list goes on and on and on, right? And you yourself being somebody who's made such a lasting impact on, on music as a whole, I'm curious, is there something on the musical side of things that these, these types of icons, yourself included, is there something that you've noticed that they or yourself are paying attention to that others aren't, that the average professional musician isn't paying attention to? Good question and difficult to um, quantify because the range of musicians that you listed there yeah, um, are so wild. wildly different from each other. If I think about a common thread, you know, it kind of goes back to where we started a little bit in the sense that there is some aspect of who they are that they're able to to represent with some kind of really particular clarity that is understandable and sort of compelling to people. It, it, it's it's a it's a challenging thing to achieve that with kind of consistent results too. It's like I mean you know most people you know that are kind of talented, you know, and talent is kind of the enemy to me in a lot of ways. It's like, you got to really fight that talent thing, you know, because that can really send you down some weird play to, to weird places, you know. Um, but the, the thing, once you can overcome your talent to actually get to some kind of point of view that is built on the real life that you've actually led, as opposed to one that you wish you might have led, there then becomes something that's kind of authentic to that. And I know that's a really popular word these days. Um, but every person that you just mentioned, that's something they do have in common. There's one of them. They were it. And yes. uh, to me, that is a, a, a kind of asterisk that you can put on pretty much all the musicians we're going to talk about in, in a conversation like this is that that was it. You know, they, they got to that thing. And, you know, this is a li another little thing that I've been adding in there kind of with the age that I'm at. And so many of my very close friends are not on the planet anymore. You know, if you get the chance to go see Brad Meldow, you should go because that's it. You know, that's it. And yes, he's made some nice records and they're really good. They're not it. It's him playing live on a gig. That's it. And for me, that's always been true, too. I, um, you know, I hope I've gotten better at making records. You know, we're we're, we're so kind of, uh, you know, even in our discussion today, we're kind of basing it around these recordings because um, we kind of have to. Um, but to me, the records were always the ad to get people to come to the gig and the gig uh, is it. Yeah. And uh, in, in, in one way, that makes me nicely suited for this moment in culture because records don't really do the thing <laughs> they did used to do. Sure. Um, you know, I, I often say to people, it's like, OK, we could have a Freddie Hubbard festival and everybody could play Freddie's tunes and people who used to play with Freddie could be there. But no. 
if Freddie's not there, you, that was it. And it will never be again, you know? And so, you know, if you get the chance to go see like a heavy dude, go, because that's it, man. You know, it won't come again. And maybe there's going to be something else that's going to be good, but that won't be back. And, um, you know, it's a, it's kind of a precious thing, you know? And I mean, I feel the same way, like about Bob Dylan, man, if you can see Bob Dylan, go see Bob Dylan, you know, it's like, don't miss that. Um, there's never going to be anything like that ever again. That's it. And yeah, I mean, you can get the records, but that's not it. That's, that's kind of a thing, but it's not it. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. You have such a long-spanning career, which is incredible. There are things like tons of Grammys, over 10 different categories, selling a lot of albums, uh, in the time when albums were selling <laughs> gold records, that sort of thing. You've been selling tons of tickets. You've, you've had so much uh, objective success, right? And there is so many things that, that like you, you at this point have to say, yes, I have been a successful musician. Great. Okay. I'm curious, what barometer are you using now to measure? Like what's a win for you? What, 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 what are you using to, to measure success for you now? Well, Corey, you're asking some really good questions, man. I got to give <laughs> it. I got to give it to you. That's great. You know, it's an interesting thing for me, and this is related a little bit to the period that we've all just been through of you know, no gigs. And yeah. for me, it's the first time since high school that I sat in one place and watched you know five seasons go go through spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, you know, it's the first time I've witnessed that from one point of view for a long, long time. You know, it's, I kind of got to something that I've kind of been getting towards anyway. And this is a weird thing to say, but it's sort of like music was kind of always the carrot, but there's a stick. And I've really been following that carrot. And I'm way more about the stick than I am the carrot these days. By that, I mean, you know, music is kind of a, a very unique aspect of our time that we share as humans on this, you know, planet and, you know, the, the universe and all that stuff in yeah. the sense that it, it's a mystery thing. You know, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you know, it, it, it's, but you walk into, you know, a room and if people are really dealing, there's no mistaking it, you know? And of course, we all know the feelings that we get from music that you just don't get anywhere else. Not to mention how music allows us, you know, by, I, I mentioned the four and more record that I've listened to since I was 11, 
obviously what's on the the grooves is still the same now as it was then. But every time I listen to it, I hear it differently. It's not it. It's me. You know, it's this mirror. Music is this way of reflecting also back to ourselves of who we are and what we've been through and how we've grown and all that. So in a lot of ways, I see music more and more as a symptom of something that, and I don't know what that is exactly, more than the thing. And um, the fact that music kind of lives in the cracks of what we can and can't perceive, um, you know, it does put it in realms that we've all traded in to certain degrees in different cultures of religion, philosophy, blah, 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 all that. But the thing is about music, it's true. It's real. And by that, I mean, you wake up each morning and B flat is still B flat. It hasn't changed. And it's a little bit then related to two plus two is always four. There's a, a fundamental truth to what music represents that is in fact at least as far as we know, within this universe, universal, in the sense that the way that physics works, the way that atoms are defined, you know, in ways that reflect what the overtone series is, you know, there, there are many aspects to our physical life that have connections to what music literally actually is. And I just feel like, first of all, how lucky I am to be able to trade in a currency that's true in a world where who knows what, you know, I mean, people are saying all kinds of weird stuff now, you know, and like kind of getting away with it even, but man, music is, it's for real. And it's a fundamental thing that you can really count on. And, you know, kind of going back to the more practical aspects of what we've been talking about here, People, sometimes it comes up, what should I work on? It, it kind of, as long as you're living inside music and working on something, you're putting like uh, currency into this bank that will pay a thousand percent interest. I promise it. Whatever you work on, whatever hour you spend on whatever it is you've decided you love, you're going to get a thousand hours back. It's like the weirdest, most guaranteed bank there is. It's like you will get it back because it's true. And I think whenever you're dealing with something that's fundamentally true in any realm, but, um, you know, is the, we're talking about music here, but truth has a real power to it that is uh, incredibly resilient, valuable, robust, deep, strong. And man, there is nothing I've found on our plane that that uh, kind of allows that to be seen more vividly than music. Wow, that's incredible. I love the way you look at that and explain that. Wow. Good question. Deserves a good answer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, here's something. So, you know, you're, you're, you carry, you put a lot of weight on music, but also it's just so, it's so much, it's just a part of you, right? So- what I'm curious is the people that you choose to make music with then, you, you've had a lot of different people throughout your career that you've played with, both as collaborators on a project like Matheny Maldow or your duo album with Jim Hall or whatever other projects that you've had that, are, that have been like defined as a collaboration. But then there's also 
um, having Antonio Sanchez or Nate Smith or Marcus Gilmore, like on the new album. You, you can choose a lot of people that you decide to build that currency with, build your you know, investment with. What is it that you look for in a collaborator and, and what, can other, what can certain collaborators bring out of you that others don't? Well, you know, kind of before anything else, if I think about, you know, the, the time that I've been kind of on the scene doing what I've been doing, my main job actually has been band leader. Yeah. Um, and not only that, uh, the band leader that writes 90% of the notes that get played on the bandstand. So, you know, kind of first and foremost, I need to find people who can play, play the tunes and understand the, the concept. Um, that's hard for me to find actually. And, and it's true. I've been lucky to have lots of great musicians kind of pass through my thing, but it's, man, it's, uh, it's a tough process to get people for me because it's a, it's an odd set of requirements. It, you know, I mean, it, it does require that you have, you, you can play stable mates or, you know, you know, you can play bebop, but we're not going to play that. Yeah, (laughs) but you have to be able to do that. And most people who get good at doing that want to do that. Yeah. And it's sort of like, yeah, you got to be able to do that, but we're not going to do that. You know, so right there, that's something, Um, you know, I would just put a little sub paragraph in here, which is if it's music that involves drums, which a big percentage of my thing does, the drummer is the leader. The most important thing is the drummer always. It doesn't matter whose band it is, the drummer is the leader. So to me, drums are the most essential seat in the band. And that's always been true. And I've been really lucky from the very beginning to be around really many of the greatest drummers of our time. Starting in Kansas City, my major guy was a guy named Tommy Ruskin, who was the drummer in Kansas City. And I got to start playing with him when I was 14. And man, I trace everything to Tommy. Um, Just sitting next to him was the ground, uh, you you know, the the foundation of everything that, that followed. And had I not had that experience I, I don't know what would happen, but it's all about the drums to start with. So the first and most important person is always going to be the drummer. Um, of course, that's then followed by the bass player. And, uh, you know, I used to play bass a lot. I love playing bass. I would happily be a bass player now. And I was, you know, even pretty young, I was a good reader on the bass because, of course, you only have to play one note at a time, which is a lot easier than the guitar where you have to decipher all this stuff. But, you know, when I was uh, 17 or I guess 18, I moved to Miami. And the second night I was there, I heard this guy playing the bass And since I'd never been anywhere outside of Kansas City, I thought, well, there must be people like him everywhere. I'm not going to play the bass anymore. And of course, that was Jocko. (laughs) (laughs) And then he and I became best friends. And I thought, God, is there somebody like this? Are there musicians like this all over the country? And I just, (laughs) but anyway, that was a special thing. So I stopped playing the bass, you know, then, but I've always had uh, a kind of bass consciousness and have been, uh, once again, lucky to play with many of the great bass players along the way um so that's those are the two you know important ones you know the drums being kind of way most important um so beyond that 
um, there, there's all the musical reasons I could give, but you know, there's a, another one that's really important. It has to be a good guy, a good person, you know, it has to be somebody that you can hang with. We're going to go out and live in a bus for, you know, like nine months, you know, crammed together playing five, six cities a week, you know, different city every night, three hours a night. I mean, you know, to find people who can do that is hard. And then to be able to do that, not just for 10 or 12 or 14 gigs, but for, you know, I always look at somebody and think, how's this guy going to do, or this woman now, because I've had a number of women through, through the band too. How's this person going to do on gig, you know, 37 in Liège, you know, <laughs> during yeah. a uh, rainstorm where the hotel isn't ready. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like that stuff is a big part of it too. Um, but, you know, I also, of course, am looking for people who can contribute. And, and I've also, as a band leader, had a, a, a kind of number one philosophy, which is I want to pick people who somebody in the audience is going to find whoever that person is to be their favorite musician on the bandstand. I want bands where everybody is somebody's favorite. And I also want people in the band to feel like if they weren't there, it would suck. Yeah. Like I want it to feel like that. I, I want like it to, that. I want everybody to be happy. Yeah. I want everybody to be getting the thing. Also, I want everybody to play kind of within this zone that I am very meticulously and stubbornly and, with a kind of benevolent dictatorship mentality going to maintain. And, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy gig playing with me. I think most people who have worked with me would tell you that. And also I think very few of them would say it was a bad experience for them either. It's just super intense because, you know, I'm also never going to ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do twice as much. So if I say, yeah, you got to memorize that 40 pages of stuff, that's what I'm going to do. And also your part. So, you know, or whatever it is, um, you know, uh, it's I, I think some of that also is that I was around a incredibly good band leader in a very formative part of my life, which was Gary Burton, who uh, was more coming from like the Stan Getz lineage of, you know, kind of uh, what, what it is to be a band leader in a uh, kind of, you know, compact way. I mean, my thing is is probably closer in a lot of ways to like a mid-level rock band in terms of, you know, there's a crew and yeah. truck and we bring a lot of crap and, and stuff, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's unique. And when somebody comes in, whether it's a musician or in the crew, I have to sit down and talk to them and say, whatever you think this is, it's not that because there is no other gig quite like this one. All right, I have the last thing I want to ask. There's there's a handful of non-controversial rumors, uh, misconceptions, <laughs> whatever that I just wanna I wanna I wanna get straight from the source. I've heard some pretty weird ones. So I heard somewhere that Jocko was not the first call for Bright Size Life, and what would that album have been like? What? How would you approach that different if it wasn't Jocko on the bass? Can you clear that one up? That is true, and. You know, once again, I've mentioned Gary Burton several times in this. I have to once again mention Gary, who, um, you know, I was 18 and I had the chance to make a record for ECM. You know, yeah. I mean, it was like unbelievable. You know, ECM was just emerging with Keith and Chick and Gary and 
you know, this opportunity presented itself. And, um, you know, I was like, wow, great. And it sort of was, you know, suggested that maybe I might want to use Jack and Jack Dijonette and Dave Holland, of which I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> great. That'd be great. And um, two things happened. Gary, who actually was the reason I was getting this opportunity because I had recorded with him and was noticed and so forth. Gary was like, you know, I made my first record when I was 16 and I've regretted it ever, ever since. And I really don't want you to make that same mistake. And you're not really ready to make that record yet. He said, you're playing good. It's great that you're in the band. Um, but, you know, take your time. You might only be able to make one record, make it that record. And that was a sentence that really stuck with me. So um, because I was playing in Gary's band at the time, I was writing a lot of music. And not only was I around Gary, I was around Steve Swallow, who, in addition to being one of the greatest bass players, both on acoustic and electric, is just for falling grace alone, the kind of in the top three composers of the 60s. You know, I mean, that tune kind of redefined harmony for uh, several generations now of musicians. So he's, and also very bright, very, both of them very bright, very critical, very eloquent in terms of explaining why such and such tune was not maybe ready for prime time. So I began the process of, uh, you know, writing a lot of music and sort of doing little demos with Gary in his basement where he would play piano. And he's, he was brutal, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was really tough. And yeah. the thing that was great about Gary is that he would be really brutal. And then he would go out on the bandstand and then kind of illuminate everything he just said. And I would go, okay, yeah, you can't really argue with that. And also Gary was not a composer himself, but was a really good guy to pick tunes. And a lot of compo really good composers, Carla Blay, Mike Gibbs, uh, you know, would submit tunes and he would reject them. And I'd be wow. like, really, what's wrong with that one? He, and he would say, well, blah, 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 blah. And I would go, wow. Okay. So that was kind of the um, atmosphere. And um, when I wrote the tune, Bright Size Life, I remember playing it with Gary and him saying, okay, that's the first tune on the record. Mm. And it, it was like he it was sort of like, OK, now you've kind of defined your world. So keep going with that. So the, and I did. I wrote the rest of the tunes. That was the first one. So then it was like, you know, Dave and Jack, it's going to be great. And Gary was like, you know, why would you use those guys? Because he'd come to hear my band at the time when you've got this great band with this bass player that nobody's ever heard of that plays pretty good, that would be Jocko. And, pretty good, um, yeah. and because this is all before weather report or any of that stuff. Yeah. Right? And um, I'm like, yeah, but you know, and he's like, really, you, you've got a great band. They play your tunes. Perfect. You, you're great. It's really good. You should use them. So that's what I did. I actually did get together with Dave and played the tunes with him and Moses. Moses was also kind of like, I mean, we all love Dave and Dave is yeah. our hero, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, Moses was like, I mean, Dave's great, but why don't you want to use us? <laughs> so I ended up, you know, 
making the right decision. And it was about a year later. I mean, it wasn't that much later. It seemed, you know, when you're 18, a year is like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like I had to wait forever, you know, to get to do the record. But um, finally, it all worked out. So, Wow. Okay. Non-confrontational rumor we need to clear up number two. Somebody once told me that you occasion you like to play with a click that a, a, a metronome on stage even sometimes that ramps up in tempo. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have uh, no problem at all describing my process in that department. To me, music almost always wants to rush a little. And most of the time when people, or at least in spots, almost every rhythm session is going to rush a little bit going into cadence points, the top of the tune, the top of the form, whatever. And to me, you know, playing with a click track is a total drag if it's not going to do that stuff. And so, you know, I mean, we haven't really touched on it, but in the midst of all of this, all these years, I've also, for better or for worse, been living out on the bleeding edge of music technology, starting with this thing, legendary thing, uh, the Synclavier, which yeah. was the kind of predated MIDI, predated everything, was really the first to get to all kinds of stuff. And um, so I was like right there in 1979 with that. And, you know, one of the first things that I asked for was, can we get it so that you can define tempos with the click? Because, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to build a model of a tune, but if it doesn't rush... You know, especially since my first record was four and more for anybody who, who yeah, knows yeah. this record, they're <laughs> rushing like crazy. Yeah, when yeah. So it's rushing to me is a thing. But besides that, um, there is a way to set up playing with sequences or whatever, click, clicks or whatever, so that you don't even know you're doing it. And to me, that is something, I mean, I used to kind of, I don't want to say downplay it or i mean you know i mean literally people know the tune are you going with me that's from i think 1980 that was a sequence you know that was a we were playing with now you would say playing with a track yeah nobody knew that we were doing that at least until 2005 sure (laughs) you know (laughs) because there's a way to do that stuff so that it's completely transparent. Now, when I hear people playing with drum loops, where there's this opaque black grid in the midst of the music, that's not what I'm talking about. Because that, to me, in fact, is kind of goofy. It's like, why would you do that if you've got this great drummer? What you got to do is set up a system where nobody even knows you're doing it, including the musicians. Sure. And the way I describe it, it's like having a guy in the band who's got the greatest time, but is completely deaf. He doesn't listen to a note anybody else. (laughs) And, you know, if you do it right, you can set up a world where everything can coexist because there's a benefit in modern music, particularly where we like this sort of horizon thing that you get from a steady tempo. You know, it's, it's you can't get it any other way. And even the best drummers, there's going to be a little wobble in it. And we, you know, we've heard so much music over the last, you know, especially 30 years or so that has this horizon that's really cool, this hypnotic thing that synths and and all that stuff give us. I want that. I like that too. But 
to me, to get that to work within the realm that I like, it's got to rush a little. If it's just staying steady, wow, you know, yeah. then it's not the thing. So there's ways to do that now. And you know, pretty much every record that I've made that are the more elaborate kind of records, um, and particularly since Antonio has been in the band, who is, I mean, it's funny that he's so into this too. We're kind of like a team. <laughs> in this he makes his records like that now too. Wow. Um, but uh, we'll spend a day working on the, the click track basically to get it so that it's speeding up just a little here. And that's going to pull back a little here and doing all that stuff. And to me, that is absolutely the way to be as a musician in the 21st century, to use these tools that we have in, again, a way to express creatively um, what our idea of what we want to tell people about is. And we have, I mean, miraculous tools now, you know, it's like uh, just unreal what, what's possible. Um, I mean, I could spend the rest of my life in a room with Melodyne. <laughs> you know, to me, this is just like, wow, unreal. Not to mention Sibelius. I mean, you know, those two things alone are just like gifts, you know, that are seems like rarely used as creatively as they might be used. You know, it's like, there's so many things you can do. I mean, you know, you can take like Mahler now and like put, put chord change, different chord changes and stuff, you know, and <laughs> yeah. split off, you know, I mean, there's just so much you can do now. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you should take Mahler. And sure. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, for instance. You know. Okay. Number three, quick one. You mentioned being a huge Wes fan. I heard a rumor somewhere that you have Wes's guitar and that you bought it from George Benson. Is this true? That is true. Um, you know, I've always had kind of a, I don't want to say apathetic, but slightly apathetic demeanor towards guitars. You know, to me, they're like screwdrivers a little bit. Like this one does that, this one does that. Sure. This one's really good at that. This one does that. With the exception of my first ES-175, which I do have kind of an emotional attachment to. Um, but beyond that, it's like, you know, I need a single coil sound for this. I need this. I need that. I need that. And the, the relationship with Ibanez has been great because their guitars, man, I can pick one off the shelf and go play the gig in one second. They're absolutely consistent, you know, unlike Gibson's where no two of them are the same. They're wildly different, you know, or at least the you know older kind of Gibson's. So this chance came up to get the West guitar that George had. And kind of in the back of my mind, although I'm not, oriented towards things at all, other than, you know, just the, the gear and so forth. In the back of my mind, I had to admit, I, there's part of me that always, if I could get one of Wes's guitars, I would, yeah. <laughs> I would love that. So yeah. this kind of, this opportunity kind of presented itself. And then especially because it was coming from George too, I was like, you know, I'm just going to do a bunch of extra gigs next year <laughs> and I'm going to do this. And that sort of opened the floodgates to being really interested in a certain period and a certain kind of guitar ah. that since that time has manifested itself in a lot of guitars that were pre-World War II electric guitars, meaning the ES-150s and the ES-250s 
with Charlie Christian pickups, of which there's a very limited amount of the ES250s, not too hard to find an ES150. Then there was a bunch of Gibson guitars made kind of special order Charlie Christian pickup guitars here and there throughout the 50s and 60s. I kind of became obsessed with those, you know, those guitars. And in particular, because I had always lived in a world of humbucking pickups, understanding what a single coil pickup could do even to the way I've been playing all these years. And it was sort of like, God, I mean, about half of what I'm playing isn't really coming out, you know? And um, so I've really gone down the rabbit hole of this Charlie Christian thing. Um, not that that has to do with the West guitar, because those that that was the guitar, according to, to George, that he used just for recording on a bunch of the CTI and Verve records in the mid sixties. Um, it's, not, it's not one of the ones you see that he played live. There's two of those. One is in, in Japan and many of us have gotten to visit it because the guy that owns it is very welcoming to people. And the other one that's got the diamond that says Wes Montgomery on it is, is known to be somewhere in the Midwest, but not for sure. But this <laughs> one was the one that people see on the cover of Moving West. It's the wow. the two pickups and the Florentine cutaway. Did you ever record with that guitar? I did on Orchestrion. I used it. And in fact, oh, you can nice. see a picture of it on the, the cover of Orchestrion. Wow. You know, the funny thing with me, and more than a few people have pointed this out, um, and it's, it was a little bit of news to me, too. You know, it kind of doesn't matter what the guitar is <laughs> or what the pickup <laughs> is. Within about two seconds, it just sounds like me. And you know, <laughs> I, I almost subconsciously do a couple things yeah. to whatever guitar it is. And then I kind of wind up in the same general area of what it is. So, I mean, you know, that was brought home to me in a big way. Many years ago, we did a tour in the Soviet Union be you know, before anybody had gone to the Soviet Union. And um, there was a kind of jam session situation that, we were all exhausted and didn't really want to go to, but we was kind of like, you must go to this yeah. thing. <laughs> Nobody else would go, but I went. Yeah. Thinking it was like a jam session at club. There were like 7,000 people there. Whoa. In this big auditorium and all the local musicians, including the drummer who was playing a then recently released Oberheim DMX drum machine. Okay. That was the drummer and wow. a, an electric bass player who, you know, it was best not hearing actual pitches and a good piano player and a couple saxophone players. And then this rig that I, you know, I thought I was just going to hear it. And it was like one of those, I realize now it's, there's these Soviet made guitars, Musima or something like that. It was one of those with like heavy, heavy bottom light top set of strings, you know, wow. where it's like, yeah. you know, 005 E string and, you know, 090 low E string or something like that. <laughs> and some weird homemade amp and they play a little, and it's, you know, the thing like, you know, you're going to have to go up and play. So I go up there and I pick up this guitar and we play whatever blues or whatever. And I kind of noticed that there's cameras, like TV cameras. Yeah. So I'm like, 
God, okay. So I play my blues and that seemed to do it. And I go back to the hotel where there's that time two channels. It's on T, it's being broadcast, what we just did. <laughs> but my takeaway is it sounded exactly like what I always sound like anyway. <laughs> and I, that was a period where I was bringing like all kinds of weird stuff. You know, it wasn't quite, uh, you know, as bad as some guys get, you know, where it's about the power cable and, you know, things that really don't. But I was definitely in deep in whatever I thought my sound was was involved with. Yeah. Weird stuff. <laughs> and then I was kind of like, you know, why am I bringing all this crap around? If I sound like that with that, that's just what I sound like. So, so really my interest in guitars now is really just kind of for fun. It's just curiosity. Yeah. Well, see that, that brings me into my fourth, just the last thing that I ha had a question on that's a, a less of a rumor and more of, to me, what seems like a misconception is I've heard a lot of people say, Oh, you know, let's let's get the Pat Metheny tone. And what they do is they have some sort of jazz box. Sorry, I used the J word. They have some sort of hollow body guitar. And it's just, oh yeah, just roll off the tone knob and that's the Metheny tone. It's like, ah, no, 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 no. Like there's so much other stuff in that. And you know, then, then what ends up happening is all of a sudden there's this low end woof and feedback. And then there's not really the same articulation, that sort of thing. It's a misconception on how to get the tone. So where are they getting it wrong? And obviously you're going to, you sound like you and that's what makes the sound. But as far as the gear, those sort of choices, what are people not actually paying attention to, to get that guitar tone? Well, I know what you're talking about. You know, I remember quite vividly the reasons behind and then the moment where I got to the thing of having several amps on stage with, at that time, the recently invented digital delay between the different amps and having a dry center with these two sides that were at slightly different times. And my reason for that was that I'd been around so many saxophone players and trumpet players and drummers where it seemed like the sound just kind of came from all over the place. And then the 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 guitar guy had this little amp and was sitting in a chair and it was very direct to that spot. It didn't have that thing. So I was always like, how can I get to that? How can I get to that? And I just happened to be around Boston at the time. Waltham is where Lexicon was. It was a new company. I knew a guy who just started working there. He took me there and showed me this new device that they had. Um, and it, sort, it was like a eureka moment. And it's funny because the first time I did it live, um, we had this tune, Phase Dance. It was a tune I'd actually written for oh, Gary, yeah. Gary Burton's band. And then that became one of our opening tunes and i did it on this nashville tune guild guitar and it was you know you got these cool voicings and it was going through this system and it was such a wildly different sound for the time when we would do get you know sound checks for gigs like the janitors everybody would just stop like what is that like we've never heard anything like that before and i experienced the same thing with jocko like you know like People, it's hard to remember when that wasn't a thing, you know, and the 
kind of the way that that particular sound, which by the way, I still do. It's exactly the same uh, thing of the reason for it is to open it up, not to close it down. So when I see people describing this as chorusing and it's all happening in one box or two boxes between two speakers, neither of which is dry, it's not even the thing. And also I think that 90% of every record I've made, mostly what you're hearing is the DI. And I'm very lucky for that. I can walk into any studio and just take the guitar, plug it into the board and that put a little reverb on it. And that's it. It's that's not, that's almost everything. And the, the issue of where the tone control is set I think like a lot of players, I've had different periods of yeah. you know, time where I've been a little bit more this way or a little bit more that way. Um, I actually admire my, the boldness of some of my younger self at, <laughs> at, at just how fearless of trouble you know, I, I once was. To me, there's, uh, you know, a lot of this is affected by you know, since Wes was such a hero for me, you can turn the treble on the amp and the guitar all the way up. And if you play with your thumb, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to sound like that even. So that doesn't really exist in the world of picks, you know? It's like you can't get that any other way. And, you know, I did play with my thumb for the first couple of years. And I, you know, it's probably the best way to get a good sound, but I can't do that, you know, because yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that's been kind of an issue for me is how to reconcile all those things. And, it, and it's an ongoing thing. The other thing I would say is that, I mean, if you, if again, we're going to look bright size life till now, there's about 50 sounds, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's the Roland, there's the acoustic guitar stuff, there's all the different kinds of you know like you say hollow body type things and the part that i would say you know as reluctant as i am to be prideful of things i think most people across all of those different variations would also still be able to identify that it's me pretty quickly which tells me that it's not i mean the sound is a component of it but the hope from my standpoint would be that the sound is after the idea, because that's the way it should be. And again, going back to our language analogy, it's sort of like, okay, you've gotten good at speaking Portuguese, and now you can go to the guy in the corner, you can order a Coke. But before that happened, you were thirsty. So, you know, to me, the the thing is, it's like the idea should precede any output anyway. And, you know, I write almost everything on piano because it's infinitely easier than guitar as anybody who's a guitar player knows. (laughs) The note exists in one place and that's that. It's absolutely neutral. And if you're working on a good piano that's in tune and people hear you, they think you're a genius. You know, it's just, it's an instrument that's just, (laughs) I mean, I see piano players that are like, oh, it's like, yeah, you're good. But it's mostly the, the piano is an incredible instrument, you know? And the tuner was amazing you know <laughs> but um so you know and i also started on trumpet so you know i have a trumpet consciousness still but i definitely play the guitar better than i play piano or trumpet but if i start in my mind like okay i'm going to play a solo on my funny valentine it's 
the solo is before trumpet, piano, or guitar. I'll be able to execute it definitely better on the guitar, but the idea is before any of them. And that would be the same thing I would say to, you know, any of these issues of tone or, you know, this sound or that guitar or acoustic or electric or synth or whatever. To me, the idea should precede it. And if it does, then your identity will be enhanced by the sound. And that will probably be a little bit more um, quantifiable, maybe sure. by people who aren't really thinking about ideas the same way this discussion has led us to. It's, yeah. it's maybe the more, you know, it's the more superficial aspect of what music is, is what it, you know, how it registers on a sonic level. And it's certainly important too. But when we're talking about lines and even compositions and so forth, that all I think should precede or orchestration even, you know, it's like, like you take the, you know, the best Bach four bars you can find, you could orchestrate that a thousand different ways and it would still be great. Yeah. You know, it's not so much about the fact that it was scored for cello and bassoon and French horn or whatever. It's, you know, that that idea is an incredible idea. I love that. Wow. Pat, so much wisdom, so much great stuff in this. Thank you so much for joining us. This is an absolute pleasure. And hey, I tell you what, I'd, I'd it'd be a shame if I didn't offer. Anytime you need somebody who's an expert in rhythm guitar, call me. Let me audition. Fantastic. <laughs> it's hard to find that. <laughs> that's 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 where my heart is. I'm I'm a rhythm player. That's my You know, love. it's it's funny because one one thing, and I will call you for this, one thing that I really want to do sometime in the next few years, you know, strumming is a big thing for me. Yeah. To me, that, that's, Oh yeah. That's something that had really, except for Gabor Zabo a little bit, nobody really had done strumming before yeah. New Chautauqua and 8081, you know, that just didn't, wasn't in the language, you know, for in our zone. I mean, it's the greatest sound, right? You get four guys playing a G chord who have good <laughs> yeah. time you know, like in Nashville or whatever, it's fantastic. So something that I really want to do at some point is put together five or six guys who can really play and also know about stuff to do a, a, a strumming thing. Um, because, but, but what I was going to say is it's almost impossible to find any of the, the cats on the scene who can do it. I'm you know, your guy. It's like I see guys all the time who can play all the fanciest, <laughs> hippest shit. And it's like, well, could we just play like G and E minor? And it's like, ding, ding, ding. It's like, you know, didn't you ever like camp out? Pat, <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I wouldn't, guy, say that. Right? I, I wouldn't say this if, it was, if I wasn't the guy for the gig. I'm the guy. <laughs> Call me for this. <laughs> okay. Okay. That sounds good, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to that recording. <laughs> All right. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. There you have it. Absolute legend, Pat Matheny. Huge thanks to Pat for being on the show. Huge thanks to Premier Guitar for probably sending 150 emails on behalf of Corey Wong to try to get Pat on this show. Jason, thank you. <laughs> Seriously, that email thread I think was really long and Pat was very patient and kind to do this. 
Okay, at the beginning of this episode, I said I had a dream list of guests when I first started this podcast. All right? Now, you want to know the truth? I've already interviewed a lot of those people. Pat was number one on the list. Okay? John Mayer's on the list. have not interviewed him yet. St. Vincent, she's on the list. Have not interviewed her yet. I love what Andy other people that I that were, other people that were on my list that I actually have interviewed, Joe Satriani. He was actually my first interview, and from that interview, I ended up doing a collaboration on one of my albums. He came and did a feature on one of my tunes called Massive. It was insane. I can't believe it happened. John Schofield, Joe Walsh, those were at the top of my list. They were incredibly fun to interview. Some others that are still I, I really I really want to interview some other slide cats. Like Bonnie Raitt, Derek Trucks, mostly because I suck at Slide. There's a lot of other people as well. I mean, there's some of those other, you know, the McCartneys, the James Taylors, the Paul Simons, the Slashes, the Morellos, things of that nature, Joni Mitchell. But you know what? This season is going to be insane. There's a lot of great interviews. Most of them are already done. I think actually they're all done now. Make sure you smash that subscribe. There's some new thing in the Apple Podcasts app where you have to like click subscribe and then like auto download. You know what? If you leave a review, if you give some stars, you know, it helps me out. It helps this podcast get out to the world. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Peace.